You're listening to the Third Cup of Coffee podcast. Good day, everybody. Randy Bolander here on the Third Cup of Coffee podcast. Glad to have you with us. If you recently found us and you've been wondering what the deal is with the Third Cup of Coffee, here's my theory. It's the third cup of coffee that really unlocks the greatness within us. Like the first two, those are just for getting through the day. But that third one, man, we like pick up 30 IQ points. It's a wonderful thing. Do not hesitate. Have another cup. Have four if you'd like. It's all up to you. Today's teaching focuses on the idea of what is happening while God seems to be dragging his feet on fulfilling promises. If you follow the Lord very long, you know there are times when you feel like he has promised you something, and then you wait, and you wait, and you wait. And what are those waiting seasons for? This is part three of our series from The Bridge on Egypt. Stay with us. You know, we have kids in three different school systems or three different school situations. Um, One in Blue Valley, uh, another private school, some homeschool. So as you can imagine, mornings around here are off the charts crazy. Uh, Lots of rushing around, uh, lots of not rushing. Uh, Discussion about when we are going to leave and when we were supposed to leave. And I am probably uh, a little anal about getting out the door on time. I, you know, maybe it's a, the dad factor. I don't know what it is. I like to leave early. I like to do everything early. I rarely get my way. And, uh, but by leaving early, uh, that makes sense to me to get there on time. It doesn't make sense to all of my children. And it doesn't always make sense to the same ones at the same time. You can never really predict which one does not feel the burden that I feel about urgency. And so this means that a lot of times I will end up out in the car sitting and I'm waiting for someone. It's not always the same child. What's interesting is what goes through my mind while we are out there waiting for the unnamed child who is yet to come in. Because what goes through my mind is generally, what are they doing in there? Like what what on earth is happening while I'm out here in the car? To their credit, they may be rushing around, looking for shoes, putting on socks, trying to find their homework. But in my imagination, while I am waiting for them, they are sitting in there listening to classical music and sipping tea. Like that's in my head what I think they're doing. Because when you are the one waiting, your natural assumption is the person you are waiting for is doing nothing. The question before us is the same that was before the Israelites during the season of Egyptian captivity. What is God doing while I'm waiting? Like what what is he doing in there? I want to talk about the promise of God in the season of delay that the Israelites find themselves in and that we find ourselves in. And if you say, well, I don't feel like I'm in a season of waiting right now. Well, just wait. You will be. I mean, that's just, it's a part of life. The Hebrews in Egypt found themselves in the midst of one of the greatest pauses of all of human history between the promise of what God told them and the fulfillment. And they're hanging between those two things. It felt like by a thread. Their situation for most of the time in Egypt was not the reality that they arrived to years earlier. Things were hard, but they still had specific promises from God and from man. And they had documents of things recorded that God had planned. There were promises from history. If you look at Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, this is what they hung on to. Now the Lord said to Abraham, go from your country and from your kindred, 
and from your father's house to the land that I give you. I will make of you a great nation. I will bless you and I will make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and to him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all of the families of earth will be blessed. This to the Israelites in Egypt was not just grandpa's pipe dream. You know, some of you, you had a relative that had crazy ideas and you didn't, you kind of filed it away and you never thought about it that much. This was not that kind of thing. This was a very concrete thing in their mind. They didn't make excuses for God. The, those Israelites in Egypt held on to these things. They said, one day we will have a land of our own. We're going to have a place. We're going to have a generation, a nation of great people. We'll have a place and we'll have a people. And they said, we will have a resource for the entire world. We're going to have a purpose to bless others. That blessing said they will be blessed to be a blessing. That is not a fundraising pitch from a church. That is the call of God on the life of the people of God. It's not much different than what we dream about here on Zoom. Lord, would you give us a place? Would you give us a place where we can gather? Would you give us a people, Lord? Would you add to our numbers? And would you use us to bless others? Now, what we have right now, this is the best we can do. And the Lord is pleased with it, but we're not settling for it. Whenever there is a gap between what we are called to, what we are promised, and what we are experiencing, the danger is to just call it fine. Well, you know, it's kind of what the Lord has given us and we have to settle. And there's a danger in settling for less than the promise or in normalizing the promise. It's gotten better now, but there were years for which Microsoft Windows was like the worst thing you could possibly do for your computer. Some of you struggled for years with Windows. And again, it's gotten better, uh, but for a long time, it was just terrible. And the more people complained, the more Microsoft would explain to them that, no, 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 this is the new standard. This is the way it works. You just have to get used to it. Uh, someone asked Bill Gates, the CEO of Microsoft one time, to change a light bulb, and he just declared darkness the new standard. He's like, nope, that's just the way it works. You're going to have to get used to darkness, as if the current reality was the end all. Let me tell you, friends, what we're doing here, this is not the end all. Homelessness and subjugation is not the standard. The Israelites did not say Egypt is the new normal. This is not the standard for the people of God. It's just the present reality. And yet here they were in Egypt with no place of their own, no identity but of slaves, and no purpose other than what the Egyptians dreamed up for them. They were existing for the fulfillment of the dreams of the ungodly around them, but they still had promises from Abraham. And their hope wasn't only based in ancient history. There were promises from way back, but there were also more recent promises. When Jacob arrived in Israel, when he came down during the famine, he was scared. He was panicky. And he said uh, to, to his family that he was afraid. In Genesis 46, 3, he says, uh, the Lord speaks to him. It says, I am God, the God of your fathers. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for I will make you into a great nation. He's reassuring him. What I told Abraham is true for you. I myself will go down with you to Egypt and I will bring you up again. And Joseph's hand shall close your eyes. He says, you're, gonna, you're not going to stay there. You're, you may come back dead, but you're going to come back and you will come back to the land of Canaan. So they had ancient promises and they had recent promises. And once they arrived in Egypt, they even had promises from people. 
Under Pharaoh, they had opportunities they would not have ever imagined. Exodus 47, 8. I'm sorry, Genesis 47, 8. The land of Egypt is before you. Settle your father and your brothers in the best of the land. Settle them in the land of Goshen. And if you know any able men around you, put them in charge of my livestock. So here they come to Egypt and Pharaoh promises them, stay in Goshen. I've got a good place for you and I've got jobs if you want them. There was a time when they could have imagined staying in Egypt indefinitely. They had work, they had land, they had Joseph on the inside to help them out if there was any struggles. But then they started noticing subtle changes in the promises that had been given to them by men. When a group of people within a land becomes hated, it very rarely happens overnight. We read of the World War II evening of Kristallnacht or the night of broken glass when there was suddenly a public launch of anti-Semitism. And suddenly all of these people came against the Jews, but there had been a latent resistance to the Jews long before that. Kristallnacht was just the launching of it publicly. And like the Jews of the 1900s in Germany, the Hebrews of Egypt grew more and more hated over time, and they become more and more subject and more and more pronounced uh, under persecution of the Egyptians. Finally, their eyes were open to their reality of their situation, and they were beginning to acquaint themselves with the fact that they've had promises from Pharaoh that have been broken. And they begin to learn what all of us learn, that people disappoint us and the promises get broken. Do you remember the first serious promise you ever had broken? Maybe you were a child who were promised a trip or you were promised a certain thing from a parent and it never happened. Or maybe you were an adolescent who had been promised a job and that job didn't come through. Maybe as an adult, somebody made a very serious promise to you and, and they broke those promises. And the light went on and you realized, oh, People make promises and they don't keep them because people change and promises go away. The Israelites were living in Egypt and they remember the moment that that promise changed. They remembered it so clearly when that the people of Egypt broke their promises to them that they wrote it down. They're like, we, we've got to keep track of this. Just as they wrote down the promises of Abraham before, they wrote it down in Exodus 1, 8 through 11. It says, now there arose a new king who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, may they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. And they built for Pharaoh store cities, Pithom and Ramses. The promises of God were yet to be fulfilled, and suddenly the promises of Pharaoh came up empty because Egypt felt threatened. You cannot project onto God the terrible things that people do when they break their promises. In the current political and religious climate, there is a wave of people, I mean a, a wave of people, very vocal people, leaving the evangelical church. So many of them that they've coined a name for it online, they call them the ex-evangelicals. And they identify as this. They're ticked off, they're mad, people have disappointed them, and they are leaving out of disappointment with people. But in their leaving, they're walking away from really good doctrine. 
They were saved by grace and they're walking away from that. The Holy Spirit lives within them to help them. They're walking away from that. Jesus is returning for them. They're walking away from that. They're taking their disappointment with people and they're projecting it on God. Friends, people are not just fallible, okay? They're not just potentially able to do the wrong thing. They are prone to failure. They're wired for it. And they're not bent towards keeping their promises because their promises are often conditional and conditions change. People's promises to us are almost always conditional. And when conditions change, all you have left is what God promised you. That's why it is fundamental that we get alone with God and hear the promises he has for us, not just the promises that people make to us. Because when people fail, we need a promise of our own. What changed for Pharaoh? Why did, why did Pharaoh suddenly make this turn? Yes, it was that he didn't know Joseph. He didn't, it was a new Pharaoh and he didn't remember him, but it was more complicated than that. Something to remember about the Egyptians is they had a real superiority complex. Historically, the people of Egypt believed they were far above all other people. Any other psychology textbook will tell you that behavior like that is designed to conceal a feeling of inferiority. They were overtly racist out of fear that other races would take over them. And what did they say in that passage? Behold, the people of Israel are too many, and they're too mighty for us. When people break their promises, it's often out of fear. And you realize that they promised you something to control you. Pharaoh's original thought was, I'm going to keep the Israelites happy, and it won't cause problems. I'll give them land, I'll give them jobs, and they can live their lives. But suddenly there were too many of them, and fear kicked in, and Egypt went from accommodating them out of fear to persecuting them out of fear. All the promises were revoked, but the reason to revoke the promise was the same reason they were given the promise, the control of other people. The promises from Pharaoh were based in manipulation. God is powerful. God is omnipotent, but God is not manipulative. He does not give us promises to manipulate us. Some of us have a very difficult time taking God at his word because we have been lied to and manipulated by people for so long. It's easy to think of all promises as nothing more than talk or a form of manipulation. Don't allow encounters with dysfunctional people form your expectation of how God is going to walk out his promises to you. They're completely different. Some of us get through life by lowering expectations. We lower our expectations on people. We lower our expectations on God. And in doing so, we kind of feel like, well, we're letting him off the hook. Maybe it's a good thing. And if we are reminded, well, hey, didn't God promise these sorts of things? Didn't God call you to this? Didn't God invite you into something that you haven't seen yet? And inwardly we mutter, yeah, but, you know, circumstances change. Pharaoh is not God, and God is not Pharaoh. The people who disappoint us are not God, and God is not one of those people who disappoint us. Now, I have to tell you, I am being stirred and preaching to myself here, as I am revisiting promises that I've had in my own heart for years. I believe for a people of God that will gather around his presence. And I mean, gather in the physical sense. I believe for that. 
I believe for a people of God that welcomes their neighbors and that that people of God can grow like the people of Egypt. I believe for a place and I believe for a people. And I believe that those people can be a force to be reckoned with in their city because they value the presence of God. I'm believing for all of those things. And in our current situation, it could be easy to say, yeah, but circumstances change. But I've held on to these promises for 20 years, and I've seen glimpses of it, but I'm believing for full fulfillment of it because God is the best promise keeper in all of history. Pharaoh broke promises out of fear, but God does not share that thought structure. So what is taking him so long? Like in light of that, what is he doing in there? We're all sitting out here in the car. God, what are you doing while we're waiting you to fulfill your promises? One of the reasons that things don't work on our timetable like we expect them to is that we value efficiency, don't we? We love things being very, very efficient. You search Amazon, there are over 20,000 books with the word efficiency in the title. It is a high value for us. We value efficiency. God values quality. Why is efficiency so important in the business world? Because if you save time or money, you get more time or money, right? If you are building a house, and it's not going to be your house, you do things as efficiently as possible. You put the number of trusses in there required to do the job, but you certainly don't put in any extra. You put the nicest tile that fits the budget, but you don't upgrade the tile without knowing you're going to make more money. You cram as many work days as you can to get the house under roof as quickly as you can, because in the market, time is money, and you can gain time or money if you save time or money. You do good work, but you don't generally do your best work. To do your best work would mean you had to be free of the constraints of time or money. How would you build something if time or money were not factors? You do higher quality work. Might take you a while, but when it was done, you'd have a very different house. God builds like he has all of the time and all of the resources in the world because he does. Second Peter 3, 8, and 9 says, don't overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord, one day is like a thousand years. And a thousand years is as one day. The Lord is not slow in fulfilling his promises as some count slowness, as the one waiting in the car counts it. What are you doing in there? The Lord's not slow. He is patient towards you, not wishing that anyone would perish, but that we would all reach repentance. Why does God seem slow in achieving his promises? Because he is working and what he is forming in us as we wait is greater than what we would have without the waiting. He's not rattled by our demands for efficiency. He is building us a house we would not build for ourselves. Don't rush God. You don't want a half-finished promise. He is working on his timetable with his budget and with his level of excellence. He is not motivated by our ideas of efficiency. He is motivated by the best job that he can do. Resist the temptation to sit in the driveway honking the horn, thinking God is doing nothing. He is not affected by our addiction to efficiency. What he is doing will be done in his time. He has promised it, and it will be done at a higher grade of finish than what we would ever settle for if we could actually rush him. This is the challenge before us. Can we believe God's promises and trust his plan and trust his timing as something more than just something to endure, but actually something that is good for us? Because if we believe in the one who made the promise, 
then the promise has value even before it comes together. This is a great verse in Psalm 119, verse 140. I, I love Psalm 119. You, what other chapters do you have that they're, you're at verse 140 and you're not done yet? It's just a great big long, long psalm. Psalm 119, 140 says, Your promise is well tried and your servant loves it. it says, God, you have given us a promise. It's, it's working out. You're doing it, but I'm going to love it even as you are working on it. We're not waiting just for God to improve things. We're holding on to a promise, and, and we've got to love what he is doing. Bob Sorge said the other day that a promise of God is a miracle on a timer. It's on a timer. How long is the timer? We don't know, but it's going to go off. And when it does, it will be full. Let me give you just a couple of reasons why waiting in Egypt is so often a part of his plan. We've talked about what's happening back there, but why does he have us at times, maybe now, waiting in Egypt? Number one, we wait in Egypt for our own growth. The Israelites came to Egypt with some goods and a handful of people. They weren't poor people by any means. Uh, they, when you read the record, they were people of accomplishment, but there was a handful of people, Jacob, his sons, their wives, his father, extended family, depending on how you read the lists in the Bible, between 70 and 75 people, okay, if that gives you a grid for it. It's not a, um, not a huge crowd, but it's not five people either, 75 people. And they weren't poor people. They were people of means, but the Bible says they were trending towards starvation. And uh, wealthy people starve just like poor people if they don't have food. If you don't have money, if you have money, it doesn't matter if you can't get food. So what that means is what they had would not have sustained them through the season they were going into had they stayed where they were. They might have died with full pockets, but they would have died with empty stomachs. And is a man really rich if he can't buy bread? I mean, that doesn't really, what does rich mean? Had they stayed in Canaan, they would have never been able to develop to the point where they could have ruled the promised land that they were called to rule. Sometimes you have to spend time in Egypt to become capable to inherit the promises that God gives you. Their band of 75 people over the centuries grew to, the Bible says, 600,000 men plus wives and children, figuratively possibly 2 million people over the centuries that they grew to. Not only did they grow in number, but they left Egypt with millions of people and the wealth of Egypt. Exodus 12, 36 says, as they made their exodus, the Lord gave people favor in the sight of Egyptians. I have so many questions about how this happened. They were responsible for the plagues that rained down on Egypt. But as they are leaving Egypt, the Lord gives them favor in the sight of the Egyptians. So they let them have what they asked. And they plundered the Egyptians. They left Egypt with the wealth of Egypt. Two million people with the wealth of Egypt. Now, why could they not have achieved all this in Canaan had they stayed where they were? They might have gained some of the wealth had they not gone to Egypt, but they would have never grown together as a distinct people. Going to Egypt meant that they had to gather up and hunker down and maintain their unique identity for fear of being wiped out. They didn't intermarry with the Egyptians. They didn't scatter through the land in Egypt. Egypt, where they spent the years as slaves, and Canaan, which was figuratively the promised land, were culturally very different. 
Canaan was the land of great diversity, far less bias towards other races. They would have never grown in identity back in Canaan because it was impossible to avoid the intermarriage with the pagans and the wicked inhabitants of Canaan. They would, just have, would have mixed through them. All through the Old Testament, we find the people of Israel drawn to compromise and marriage with these pagans through relationship with the neighbors that were different than them, but not so different as to not be attractive. But while the pagan neighbors of Canaan might have been interested in seducing the Israelites, the Egyptians would not have them. Egyptians had this sense of superiority over all other groups, and their full self-worth told them that the Israelites were not worthy of their sons and daughters. Israel, I'm sorry, Egypt was so racially biased and had such a hatred boiled into their system of other races that Israel could grow there in identity over centuries without ever being assimilated. What felt like isolation in Egypt was actually the insulation of the womb of what God was making there in a people of two million people. If God has you in Egypt, a place of isolation and a place where you're looked at as radically different, it is because the growth that you will achieve in that place is growth you would not achieve if you were allowed to go to a more comfortable situation. You're like, oh, I don't like this message very much. <laughs> it's like, this is not good. Egypt is lonely. Egypt is hard. So use that time to become what you would not become in a place where you were constantly wooed into contact with other people. Wouldn't it, wouldn't it be a waste if in the season of uh, coming out of coronavirus and suddenly we can go back to normal, that we all went back to normal? Like, and, and out of the, the year, the two spend, uh, being spent in isolation, that we didn't make something out of that, that we literally waste our season in Egypt because we didn't become who God wanted us to be. If there are unfulfilled promises in your life you are in a season of growth and development until you will inherit those promises as a stronger and different person than would have been had had you given, been given the promises via instant download. So we wait in Egypt to become the people who will inherit the promise. Second reason we wait in Egypt is to teach us to cry for a deliverer. If you've ever been around a toddler, you know that many of them struggle with a deliberating undiagnosed case of ICDMS. Your, your kids may, maybe your doctor has diagnosed this ICDMS. Um, your doctor may not mention it because it's so common, but you see the symptoms. They're struggling with their shoes or their buttons. And when they, you reach to help them, uh, the ICDMS comes up and they say, I can do it myself. Okay. That's what that stands for. I can do it myself. And it's comical when their toddler is trying to put on their shoes. I can do it myself. So you let them occupies them for 20 minutes. But then it's scary when they're learning how to drive. I can do it myself. Well, I actually know you, you can't do it myself. Then it gets even worse. You know, if you've got a brain surgeon who says, I can do it myself. No, there are some things you can't do by yourself. You can eventually learn to tie your shoes, but you can't do everything by yourself. When you go back to the original clan that moved from Egypt, before Joseph was carted off to Egypt, his brothers back there, there was a lot of, I can do this myself. Genesis 37, 19 and 20 says, they said to one another, here comes this dreamer. This is as they see Joseph coming. Come, let's kill him. Let's throw him into one of the pits. We'll say that a fierce animal has devoured him and we'll see what becomes of his dreams. We can become people of our own. We don't need this brother 
who supposedly has a call of God in his life. We can do this ourselves. Behind Reuben's back, one of the brothers, they allowed him to be sold into slavery. It was a violent act of taking the one that God had clearly assigned for leadership and sidelining him because they were convinced, I don't need God's plan. I can do it myself. That kind of thinking left them feeling in control, but having rejected God's plan for their entire family. Sometimes I can do it myself leaves you in a bad spot and you've got to revisit what you think you can do for yourselves. You all know people who have never grown out of that toddler phrase, I can do it myself. Some of you are thinking, I have been that person who has continually said, I can do it myself. And sometimes in limited circumstances, we can, but it's not God's plan, and it leads to extended misery. The Israelites' time in Egypt caused them to cry out for help, and it captured God's heart. Because in their cry for help, they acknowledged that he was superior to them, and they needed a deliverer from on high. Exodus 2, 23-25, this is when the king died. And the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery, and they cried out for help. This is beautiful. The cry of rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. And God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. That word remembered, I think that we we look at it a little differently. We think of remembered as if God's got a stack of post-its somewhere and he's moving them around. He's like, oh, the Israelites, I forgot, I forgot they've been in Egypt for 400 years. Oh, this is awkward. I got to go get them out. You know, if you if you have a child we have to pick up at school and you've ever looked at the clock and went, don't, I got to get over to the school here pretty quick. That is not what it means when it says God remembered. When, the, when you see the word remembered in the Old Testament, it's talking about God. A better translation of that would be he revisited. He goes back to and he begins to act on. He remembers a lot in the, in the Old Testament. During the flood, God remembered Noah. When she was barren, God remembered Rachel. In Revelation 16, it says God will remember the sin of Babylon. When you see God remembering in the Bible, it is always tied to action. He revisits his promise and he starts to work in fulfillment. When God remembers, God moves. So this is our prayer in our season of Egypt. And it's a prayer for 2021. Remember us, O God. Remember us, O God. Psalm 106.4 says, remember me, Lord, when you show favor to your people. Help me when you save them. When he remembers, God is pressing play on the prophetic pause button because the timing is right, and we are who we are supposed to be to inherit the promise. And he says, okay, let's go. I'm going to press play now. Just like the Israelites, sometimes we're in Egypt, and we remind ourselves that the idea that we can do it ourselves is a myth, and we cry out for a Redeemer to come. At some level, all of humanity has been crying out from the very beginning. Romans 8, 22, 23 says the earth cries out. All of creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. Not only creation, but we ourselves, the church, who are the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait for adoption as sons for the redemption of our bodies. Egypt brings our prayers into alignment with creation ourselves as we say, oh, help us, oh God. We can't do this ourselves. 
something the Israelites might never have prayed had they stayed in Canaan. I would bet that you are praying prayers today you would not have prayed 18 months ago. Prayers of humility, prayers of I cannot do it myself, prayers of God, I need your help. That pleases the Lord because we are becoming someone a little more mature that doesn't say I can do it myself, is who actually says in my season of Egypt, I have learned I need to a deliverer. Remember us, oh God. Third reason for staying in Egypt. We, we stay in Egypt to become the people who, he, who can inherit the promised land. We stay in Egypt so that we realize we needed a deliverer. We can't do it ourselves. The third part, is to show God's rescuing power. There are so many ways to look at the story of Egypt and interpret it. You can even use the same words and it means different things. Early on in President Trump's administration, I heard a comic say that for the first time, people on both ends of the political spectrum were saying the exact same thing. They said people on one end of the spectrum were getting up in the morning and they were turning on their television and going, oh, what's he gonna do today? And people on the other end of the spectrum were getting on and turning on their television and going, what's he going to do today? It was like the same phrase, and it meant completely different things. You can read the story of Egypt, and you can respond in the same phrase in two different ways. You can be one of God's people enslaved by an evil king forced into centuries of, of slavery, and you can legitimately ask, how did this happen? Or you can see a picture who, of people who were miraculously provided for and brought out through great trial, and we can look at that and go, how did that happen? For 400 years in Egypt, the Hebrews' identity was cemented, and the lengths that God went through to keep those people was astounding that they would be in that situation and they would actually prosper and come out, 75 people having become 2 million people of moderate wealth coming out with all of the wealth of one of the wealthiest nations on earth. They were God's chosen people, but they were also the Egyptians' most valuable assets. <laughs> Have you ever seen the poster in, in the HR office that says, our people are our most valuable asset? That was most true in a slave situation, okay? If you look at the South before the Civil War, the slaves were the most valuable asset in the South. At the height of slavery, there are about 3 million slaves in the U.S. At a value of about $400 to $500 a piece, why did the South fight tooth and nail to protect their most valuable asset? The Egyptians knew that they had a gold mine in the Hebrew slaves, and the more slaves would have meant more wealth. But at one time, Pharaoh becomes so concerned by the number of slaves that is exploding that he endangered his most valuable asset by killing the baby boys. In that dangerous situation, it was dangerous for the babies, but also for the people as a whole. How do you prosper and how do you grow as a family if your sons are being killed? In that season when baby boys were being killed, God raises up a baby boy who is a deliverer of the very people that Pharaoh is trying to eliminate. In that passage, that follows the death decree, we begin to read of a man who came from the house of Levi who takes a wife and he has a son named Moses. 
It seems like no matter what Pharaoh throws at these people, the Lord responds with blessing that exceeds the danger and the pain. They might not have recognized it in the moment, but for thousands of years later, the Israelites would look back at their season of Egypt as a season of God's power, not God abandoning them. We will look back at the season we are in right now, scattered, sitting on phones and on on computers and tablets and looking at each other we're not going to look at this as a season of god abandoning us we will say look at the power that god had and put on display in that season when the greater moses jesus responds to our cry for delivery it is going to change the entire narrative of our lives book of hebrews refers to him as that as the greater moses They might not have recognized it in the moment, but they would for centuries to come. Some of us are in Egypt as individuals waiting on God to move. We've got promises. We're like, we're sitting in the car. Come on, God, what are you doing in there? Waiting on him to remember and hit play. Some of us are are growing into our promise. We're not people that we were a year ago. And he's saying, you're getting there. You're not ready to fully inherit what I want to bring you into, but you're getting there. And some of us are coming to the determination we cannot do it ourselves. And we're getting past that. I can do it myself phase. And we are ready to cry out for a We will look back and we will say, look what he did in this season. In this season, what is the best thing we can do? Ask him to remember. Cry out, remember, oh God, the promises you have spoken over us. And do not waste the day of this season of Egypt in our lives, God. Lord, I don't want to get to the end of this season and there'd be lessons that I didn't learn because I wasn't paying attention. So I want to ask you to join me in prayer this morning as I close. I'm going to pray and I would just encourage some of you to unmute your mics and, and lead us in prayer. His promises over us as individuals, over this people that we, we're gathering here, this is not it. This is Egypt. We're coming out. And also his promises over us as a nation that he would deliver us from this season that feels so confining, but that we would not waste a moment until he does.